I don't know if, uh, you know, some of you haven't been alive long enough to remember when the internet became a thing. Uh, I was in Birmingham this last week and uh, was riding around as you do with your kids in your hometown pointing out to, I used to do this here and I used to do that there. Um, uh, my oldest, he likes skateboarding and um, uh, a couple of months ago he was in Birmingham and he did a trick, uh, I forget what it's called and he's not out here. Uh, Brett, do you remember what it was, the big thing, the, the thing he was like, I did this. No, it wasn't a kickflip. It was something else. It was like a, a, Scott, a Scott something or a Alex something. I don't know. Anyway, we were driving by, and he pointed to this parking lot at a Milo's. Does anybody know what Milo's is? Come on, yeah. So there was a Milo's, and he said, that's where I did the, the trick at. And I looked over at Carmen, and the, the parking lot next to it was a Cracker Barrel. And I looked over, and I said, that's where I took you on our second date. <laughs> And we were laughing about how, like, we were dating in places that we could never have imagined that our kids, you know, would also be making memories right there. Uh, and so uh, driving around looking at things, and uh, we drove by a building, and I said, you know, that's the place where the first time I ever got on the Internet, that's where it was. And I pointed to this building. And I had seen it at school, right, in the library, but that didn't give me access to it. So we'd all gathered around. But my, my buddy's dad had it, and we went over there. And uh, so my mom and dad had allowed me to go with them, uh, with, 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 with my buddy and his dad to his buddy's work, and, uh, uh, and allowed me to uh, go hang out in the evening. And this is one of the things I was telling my kids the story because I was saying, this is why we are so, like, we're asking questions. We want to know where you're at. Because my mom and dad trusted this dad and the son, who was my friend, uh, in a, to let us go over. And so for the first time in my life, I go over to a computer that has internet 50, well, probably not even, it's probably like 28K. Uh, and, you know, the whole ding, 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 all the noise. And uh, this young man said, uh, Dad, are there any restrictions? And I didn't know what this meant. And so I was introduced to pornography that, that night uh, under the permission of a dad. And I will tell you, it took about 30 minutes to get one image up, so it wasn't like I got to see a whole lot, okay? Uh, but the internet, for me, the very first time, became this gateway access. And as the internet got faster and faster and my addiction continued that was birthed there in that place, it became something that I was constantly going back to. Now, is there good in the internet? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is good that comes with it. But there is a tremendous amount of, of problems that we have with the way that we distribute communication today. And, 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 and then we have seen the rise of social media and the way that information goes forward and around. It's incredible. And how many of you have heard the term fake news, right? And misinformation and censorship and all of this terminology that we see being used all over the place. One of the things that people are not talking about is the impact that this has on the church because not only is there the ability through the internet to sit here and create news stories or say that this is news or that this is not news, but there is also the exact same access for people to create their own doctrine, their own belief systems. And so what we see is within the church, there, are, there is a lot of information that is put out there that 
questions the faith. This all, I believe, culminates from something that we call the postmodern philosophy. In the year 2000, when I was at Bible college, I sat in on a series of lectures, and the professors at my college, they were talking about postmodern theory and how that we were entering the postmodern age, and they were telling us about all the fruit that would come from it. And, and the big thing was that truth is relative, right? And so all of the stories began to go around uh, where people were, were, were using this language was, you know, well, I can't determine what's true for you right? Because truth is relative. There are no absolutes. And then, of course, the pundits came back and said, well, you just created an absolute by saying there were no absolutes. And then they would come back and say, or did I? And of course, they would just talk in circles, okay? And, but what we have seen, what we have seen is we have seen this birthing of this reality that truth is relative, right? That is what People believe, and so, so it doesn't matter how much data is presented. It doesn't matter if there is even uh, video evidence of something. Postmodern philosophy in our society has risen up a generation that really is skeptical and determines by their own hierarchy what is true and what is real. One of the things that birthed out of it was equations like one plus one equals one right? And, and, and I would argue that most sane people would say, that's, that's not how that works, right? But the response would be, well, one plus one dog plus one cat doesn't equal two, uh, one dog plus one cat doesn't equal two dogs, right? And so therefore, one plus one can still equal one because the cat doesn't count. And I'm like, you have changed the equation, right? That's why we have different types of math, because the equations, they, they, they're, they're all different, right? But, but the circular reasoning comes back to this idea, well, who are you to say that one plus one doesn't equal one? And the complexity of that finds its way into our education system, where teachers are tasked with, with having to look at how did they get to this result, because that can be just as important as a correct answer. And, and these are the things that I will just say, like, I've got four kids, one that's in college and the youngest that's eight, and, 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 and these are the, this is the influence that comes from the world around us. And to be honest, it is the type of stuff that we have to kind of push back on, that there are absolutes. Because here's the reality, is that if I don't build that foundation properly in my life, Everything else is subject. Everything else is subject to collapse, to calamity, to hurt, to failure. And, and, and we get this when we're talking about building a structure, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at what, like the 150th hurricane of the season, right? There's another one out there in the coast, I mean, in the ocean. We, we get it, right? Houses had better be built right. And if they're not, they're not going to be able to withstand the hurricanes. And so we understand foundation. We understand structure, but we do not apply that in a society internally when we're talking about our lives. And I believe God gave me some revelation this week, and it is this, that we are currently living in what the enemy has created, his own Tower of Babel. And that is, if you think about the terms in the Old Testament, they were building a tower to heaven, and God said, it is not yet time, and he dispersed them by dividing their tongues. And that is what we are seeing in a perverted manner happening around 
potentially our world, but certainly around our nation. And that is that our terminology now, you never know what a word's going to mean. You never know how it's going to be used. You don't know how an equation or a system is going to work or change. And so we walk into the room, much like those who were alive during that time, and all of a sudden we don't understand each other. We don't understand where we're coming from. We don't understand what intentions are. And it's a very dangerous place. And I believe it so impacted the, the enemy's uh, uh, work back in the time of the Tower of Babel that just like in every other attempt that he's made, there is an attempt right now to create a perversion of that. What do I mean? Well, we know that Jesus came and he was the Christ. And what did he say? He said the enemy will come as an antichrist right? We know that the story will be to try to convince that this Antichrist is the true leader of the world. We see, and he says, and there will be many that try to come in, and they are Antichrist. And we have seen situations like that repeat themselves, and right now we are facing one of those in our society. And so it is so critical for us as Christians to get our foundation set properly. Let's Talk about what is a foundation for our country. Well, the foundation for our country is the U.S. Constitution. And then the question that we have put in front of us right now is do we deconstruct this Constitution or do we refine the Constitution? And so some people say we need to completely abolish it, right? Spray painting revolution on the side of buildings and, and calling for, for the end of the United States. And I'm not talking about this is happening from people outside of our country. This is happening by people who are inside of our nation. And so you have people that want to completely start over. In fact, there's a movement right now that's happening globally. Go home, look it up. It's called the Great Reset. And there is a group of people who believe that the world needs to come under an entire economic change. And, and you go, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. I, I don't even have to make it a conspiracy theory. Now, truth being relative, you can watch the videos of the world leaders talking about it and still go that you don't believe it. I can't do anything about that. But you can go and listen and watch world leaders who are having gatherings around economic change, and they are talking about what they call the Great Reset, which is a deconstruction of all constitutions and world powers. But let's just talk about the United States for a moment. I'm going to tell you, I'm not a deconstructionist. I am one for refining. I believe that just like inside of the church, we have a tremendous foundation laid out in our nation. I believe by the hand of God, there was a really solid foundation laid out. Not perfect and not upheld to its fullest potential, but it is a tremendously powerful uh, example of a foundation. Do you know that the U.S. Constitution is the longest-running constitution in, that we know of in recorded history? It is the longest-running active here today. We have the oldest constitution in the world right here today. Every other nation has abandoned their constitutions and rewritten them at least once, some as many as 20-plus times during the course of time that we've had the U.S. Constitution. I want to just pull some quotes from some people that I think uh, we would say are credible when uh, uh, in, in, in conversation around the idea of deconstruction or refining. Abraham Lincoln said this, uh, now, just so you understand the context, Nebraska was not allowed to have, uh, uh, they were, they were as, a, as a new state, they were not allowed to have slavery, and yet there were people who were proponents of adding slavery to it. Of course, 
Abraham Lincoln stood against this, and this is what he said. He said, near 80 years ago, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. Now, I will tell you, I have been off of social media now for over a month. By the grace of God, I had the ability to turn it just hit that power button and not go back to it because it was getting, I was getting a lot of anxiety watching the way that people were talking to each other. Okay. But, but let me say this before I got off, I saw people saying that the declaration of independence was a complete falsehood. Abraham Lincoln was dealing with the same thing. And this is how he addressed it. He says, but now from that beginning, we have run down to the other declaration that for some men to enslave others is a sacred right of self-government. These principles cannot stand together. They are as opposite as God and mammon, and whoever holds to the one must despise the other. So he says that, that this idea of, of, of continuing in slavery is not something that, that, we can, that we can be a part of. He goes on in this speech and says, uh, our Republican robe is soiled and trailed in the dust. Let us repurify it. Let us turn and wash it white in the spirit, if not the blood of the revolution. Let us turn slavery from its claims of moral right back upon its existing legal rights and its arguments of necessity. Let us return it to the position our fathers gave it and there let it rest in peace. Let us readopt the Declaration of Independence and with it the practices and policy which harmonize with it. So what did he say? He said, we, we had something that was presented in our nation that creates an incredible foundation. It has not properly been accessed. So what should we do? We should go back and we should try to what? Repurify it. It should be, we should go back and refine it, not deconstruct it. Frederick Douglass in one of his uh, uh, more famous speeches about the 4th of July, towards the end of this, he says, allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented. Now, we do see a lot of times the beginning of this speech quoted, and it, he has some really harsh critique for uh, pro-slavery people that I agree with, right? But he comes to the end of this, and he, he adds some, what I believe is some some imagery of refining. He says, uh, uh, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began, he says, with hope. Right. So Frederick Douglass is coming in and he's not calling for the, the nation to be disbanded and things to be destroyed. He is calling again for refinement. He goes on and he says, while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. He says that the fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. Isn't that powerful? That, that the fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. When God said, let there be light, that command is still running course today. He says, no abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. 
He goes on at the end of this to quote uh, William Lloyd Garrison, and I just pulled one verse from this that I thought was really powerful. It says, God, speed the day when human blood shall cease to flow, in every crime be understood, in every climb be understood, the claims of human brotherhood, and each return for evil good, not blow for blow, that day will come, all feuds to end, and change into a faithful friend each foe. So, what is the relevance of this? The relevance of this is that we sit right here in a very critical time, right? A very critical time in our nation where there are calls for civil unrest. I hear people talking about civil war, and I will remind you that, that there were men who came before us who believed in the foundation that was set before them, and instead of abandoning it just before the actual civil war that our nation went through, they said what we should do is repurify it not deconstruct it and be done with it, but we should do the hard work of taking it and running with it. So today, it's not everything that we want it to be, but tomorrow it can be better. The Christian faith does not need to be deconstructed or reset. That's, that's where I want to get when I'm talking about foundation, because if we don't make sure that the foundation is guarded, the legacy for our children will not be one that leads them to Christ. Is there work to do? Certainly there is work to do. Certainly there is work to do. And there have been those that have come before us that have done a tremendous amount of work, and there will be those who come after us if Jesus does not return that will continue to do work. We need to see minorities' rights and protections, right? We need to see work done in that area. That's not something that I hear people debating and discussing as if it doesn't exist, right? Women's rights and protections. These are conversations that we in the church should be a part of, right? children's rights and protections. We know that we live in a world, I think it was just two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, they busted a, a sex traffic ring in Ohio and they found 40-something children or something like that. I, I mean, we know that there are children today that are still being exploited. And so there are areas that we need to engage in, right? But if we move to deconstruction, we will find ourselves dealing with things that run contrary to the Word of God when we're talking about sexuality or gender identities, children's access to transitioning, uh, or a redefining a family. These are areas that the church should not be advocating in. And yet, somehow, there is this compliance and this, this, this like meshing of society and church instead of, as Christ instructed us, to be separated, and to be holy. So why do we see these divides becoming so prominent in the church? And this is going to lead us into our content for today. Arizona Christian University put out a study led by George Barnum. I encourage you, uh, uh, we will make a PDF available of several of their reports uh, uh, on Facebook today, as well as my notes from today. Um, George Barnum is an outstanding uh, research analyst. He has put out for 20 years some of the best information for churches to understand what's happening in our world and in our nation. He headed this up. It's called the American American Worldview Inventory. And I was looking at this, and it really blew my mind, uh, this one section. And it said that of ages 20 to 
1999, 60% claimed to be Christians, but less than 2% believe the following. So I just want you to track with me. Ages 20 to 39, some of us are outside of that age range, right? But this impacts all of us. 60% claim to be Christians. I thought, I wouldn't have believed that. Holy cow, that's amazing, right? 60% claim the faith, but less than 2% believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. God is all-powerful and knowing. Salvation is a gift from God. The deceiver is real. A Christian must share their faith. And number six, that the Bible is reliable. So 60% in that age range say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. Less than 2% of them believe these things. And I have to argue that these are pretty much essential to the Christian faith. And so if we want to be leaving a legacy for the next generation, we have got to be about more than just creating moments where people feel good about themselves, but we have to be creating moments in people's lives where they are having revelation from God and understanding what it means to be a believer. And so today I'm going to kick this off with number six, that the Bible is reliable. We're going to talk about the reliability of Scripture because the Bible is reliable. Now, I'm going to lay out a few, few points for you, but I want to tell you right up front, this is a fierce debate. There are people within the church world who are making the argument that the Bible is nothing more than the uh, uh, experiences that people had with God, and then they came home and with their own biases and their own hate and their own selfishness, they wrote out their experience with God and presented it to everybody else. And so we have to understand that, that, that this isn't from God, but it's really just where some people, some of them were really bad and, and they encountered God and they just wrote it down. And so we have to figure out what we want to take from it and then what isn't necessarily relevant for us. And, and, and again, maybe you aren't hearing these types of conversations, but it would not take much of a search for you online to find people who are making these arguments. And many of them are beginning to lead large ministries across our nation. And the idea here is that, that the Bible is not authoritative and it's not reliable. That's the argument that they make. And the greatest lie that the church allowed to kind of come in to undermine this is the statement I believe in science. And so what do they say? Well, Christians are science deniers, right? And everybody else believes in science. And, and, and now you have a group of people who will deny the Bible so that they can make an argument for science. But I just need to tell you, I just need to remind you, hopefully you know some of these things. Science is what it is today, not just because of the Christian community, but in, in a real way because of pastors, it was pastors, it was priests in the Catholic Church who, who saw science as an extension of Scripture. They believed that if the Bible said something to be true, they could prove it in the sciences. And so we have incredible leaps forward in science because of the faith of men and women. And today, do not believe that just because somebody is in the science field that they are not believers, that they do not see an almighty God's fingerprint on everything. 
We see testimony after testimony uh, in the science community of people who claim that they have themselves even experienced God, much less the fact that as they get deeper and deeper, they begin to say, it can't be an accident. It can't have just all kind of happened. It's a statistical impossibility. And we have allowed this statement to belong to somebody else. I want to tell you that when it comes to science, I believe in science. And I believe that the Word of God lines up with what we find to be true in science. Now, we have to remember, though, that there is a difference between a theory and something that is drawn to be scientifically proven. And there is a problem that the scientific community has, and I've got some citations in my notes that you can look at, but there is a problem where in the scientific community where theories are being pushed out as fact without following the process of proving them. And the reason that that's happening is because like everything else in this world, there's money in it. And in order to get their funding and in order to get the power, the authority, the notoriety that they need, there are scientific theories that get pushed out that are not confirmed and are not fact. But I would say this, that if you were to take science and those things that are proven, you will find that they line up with Scripture 100% of the time. And what do we have today? We have pastors that laugh at the idea that the Scriptures are reliable that they are something that we can count on. And I have to tell you, because if, if this is something that you've been curious about, and I hope it's not, I do not stand on that side of the divide. There is a divide, and it is growing. I watched somebody walk up to a pastor and say, you know, Pastor so-and-so, I'm trying not to throw people under the bus in this series, but this guy, he said, do you believe that the Scriptures are reliable? Do you believe they're the Word of God? And he, he laughed. He, he was walking. He turned around. He laughed in the camera's face and said, you have got to be joking me. There is nothing reliable about the text, but you can still know God. And I would argue that that's problematic. So, why is the Bible reliable? Why is the Bible something that we can rely on? I'm going to give you a handful of, uh, of, uh, of, of thoughts here. We've talked about this before. Uh, I'm going to put a link to a, a sermon we did last year where we really broke down the authenticity of Scripture. Um, I'm not going to do that because of time today, but I'm going to lay out some points that I, I think are pretty compelling. The first one is Jesus believed the Bible was reliable. So why should we believe the Bible is reliable? The first thing I'll tell you is Jesus believed that the Bible was reliable. Look here in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Observant. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, 
All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus here begins his ministry. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving, oh, hold on, yeah, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Nephtali. So that was, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and, sh and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Watch this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, Jesus knew the word. Why would I say that he knew the word, and why would I say that he thought it was reliable? Well, here in verse 4, how does he respond to the enemy? It is written. How does he do it in verse 6? It is written. In verse 7, it is written. In verse 10, what does he say? It is written. Jesus' response to the enemy is not using his own authority, which can I tell you, I would argue that if he wanted to use his own authority, he could absolutely have done that, and none of us would question it, but he did not do that. Instead, he used the authority of Scripture. So the scripture in Jesus's perspective is not only reliable, but do you get this picture that it has the authority to cast down the enemy? It has, it in itself has the authority. And so in those moments in your life where you're feeling like, man, I'm really struggling. I just, I don't know where I'm at. Do you know that if you will just be in the word, you will have tremendous authority over the enemy? And Jesus believed this. I'll add just quickly, Jesus uses the scripture as a standard and that he quotes from 24 books of the Old Testament during his ministry. So we, we get to see that, that, and when he quotes, he quotes out of the Septuagint. So this is another really great thing. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So oftentimes he did not quote the Hebrew, the original, he quoted the translation. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that not only did Jesus believe in the power of the scriptures, but he was completely comfortable with a translated copy of it. Because the versions that he quoted oftentimes were translated. The second thing that I will say about reliability is that the apostles believed the Bible was reliable. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. So Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul's encouragement to Timothy here, right, is remember what you have learned. And I, just to give you some perspective, as a, as a society, a culture, they believed in the authority of the Word of God. When you were a, a young person, you went and memorized the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
everybody memorized the first five books. So this was a part of your schooling until about age eight or nine, somewhere in there. And then they would test you and they would say, well, you know, tell us, you know, quote this part for me, say this part. And if it was found that, that you really understood and you really had memorized this, you were allowed to continue in schooling up to about age 14 or 15. And you would memorize the entire Old Testament from Genesis to, to Malachi, all of it, right? That's pretty incredible. They, th they saw value in the, in the scriptures. And then a rabbi would come around and he would be quizzing those who had gone on to learn more. And he would say, you know, quote this. What do you think of that? Tell me about this. And anybody that he thought was in line with his philosophy and his interpretation, he would tell them, come follow me. And then they would go and follow the rabbi. And what does Jesus do immediately after that temptation where he uses the word to fend off the enemy? The next part of Matthew chapter 4 is about him going and up to these uh, uh, people who, were, who had, were, were not good enough. Other rabbis had not taken them. And he begins to say what? Follow me because he believed in them, right? And, but they had an understanding of Scripture. And so they leave and they follow. And Paul tells Timothy, he says here, he says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the word here, uh, sacred, it means set apart. So these writings are set apart. They're just not like other writings. There's something that's different and unique about them. He goes on in verse 16. And just in case you were like, oh, that's kind of vague, he just goes ahead and just brings it in. So there's nothing's vague about what he's going to say. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What Scripture was he talking about? Well, he wasn't talking about the book of Revelation right here because it was probably not quite finished. He is talking about the Old Testament and so for those who are like, ah, you know, I'm a New Testament kind of person. I'm really digging in. I love the New Testament. When we look at what the apostles are talking about, and they're talking about the sacred scriptures, they are talking about the Old Testament. That's what they had in their lives. And so there is Paul telling Timothy that this is tremendously important. And what does he say? He says that it is breathed out by God. So go to uh, the you go to the, the Greek here, and the word that's there, instead of breathed out by God, it's a single word, and it's theonoustos, I think is how you pronounce it. This is what's pretty incredible, is theo is meaning God, and this, this word new, it, it's meaning air. And we use this today when we talk about like a, a pneumatic air tools, right? We talk about pneumatic tools, they use air to go through them. So, so we understand this idea, God and air. And so what the writer, what Paul is saying here is he says that the sacred text, the scripture, the thing that's so important to you, it was not a couple of kids with crayons sitting down and coming up with a great story. And it wasn't a couple of philosophers who sat down and said, well, we could come up with a better way for humanity to do their thing. It was quite literally God, the same God that looked at that formless, I mean, that, that a lifeless body of Adam and breathed life into him, the same God that, that when breath was called from the, from, from the four corners, we talked about this just last week in Ezekiel, and his breath entered their bodies and brought life, that exact same breath brought forth the scriptures. Come on, you enjoy life, you enjoy living, 
And the exact same breath that brought life into your body brought forth the scriptures. I would say that there's probably something pretty powerful about the text. And he says in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what does complete mean? Complete means here, it means fitted, ready, perfect. So if you want to be ready for the things that you're called to do, if you want to be ready for the faith, the word of God is critical. That's what Paul believed. Let's look at Peter's thoughts, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So Peter says, you need to know this, that there is no prophecy that's coming out of somebody's own personal experience. This is what the apostles believed. And so what, what does Scripture break down? Scripture, it means a writing. So what are we talking about? We're not talking about oral prophecy. We're not talking about a great story that was told. It is literally that which was written. And so the written word is incredibly important in our lives. Yesterday I was doing sermon prep and out of just kind of nowhere, Caitlin comes and sits at the, uh, the little breakfast bar at our house beside me and she says, Daddy, and of course I've got headphones on to try to not hear everybody and so they know that I don't like to be disturbed when I have my headphones in. It means I'm working and I'm trying to, but you know, still, you know kids. And so she's tapping on me and I'm like, yeah, and I pulled my headphone out and she's like, what makes private property private? And so I was like, what? And she was like, well, how do you, like, like you have property, but how do you make private property? How do you tell people this is private property? So you're not allowed to come on here. And so we started talking about property, and, uh, and I talked about property a few uh, weeks ago in our Ezekiel study, but I told her, I said, the, the reason that property can be declared as belonging to anybody is because there is a contract that has been made, right? It's not that somebody gets to come up and, and, and just go, well, this is my property, I claim it, right? I mean, that's what we do when, when you know, somebody says, who wants a you know, a candy bar. We all go, dibs, claims, it's mine, right? That's, that's the way we respond. But that's not what we do when we're talking about things that we really want to be able to take care of, to own, to possess. We want it in writing. And so if I'm going to go out and work a job and work really hard to make money and then take that money and go buy a piece of property, I need more than a handshake and a wink, right, to be able to invest that financial income into something. And then once that property is mine and I have it in writing and I've got my contract in place, then I can determine what I do with my property and what I don't do with my property. And please, I know like it'd be so easy for our minds to start going down. Well, what about ill-gotten gain and ill-gotten property? I know all that stuff exists. I'm talking about normal, hardworking people and property. And I told her the way that private property becomes private property is the first thing you've got to do is you have got to come up with an agreement and it's got to be put in writing. Right. And I thought, how what a great illustration that God just handed to me talking about the power of something being in writing, because when it's in writing, I get to take it to the court. I get to take it to the bank. I get to say, here it is in writing. And then because of that contract, it is held as being mine. 
It gives me some authority myself, right? So those written words, they become authority for me. And so what does he say? He says here, he says, first of all, that no prophecy that is in writing comes from someone's own interpretation. So that contract, the scripture that you have, that was prepared by somebody that's a little bit more powerful than any of us. And Peter says it didn't come from any of us. It came from God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the apostles believed that the scriptures were God-breathed and therefore they are reliable. And because they are in writing, we can hold them up and say, hey, this is what God says. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he was being tempted. My third and final point here is that science supports the Bible as reliable. Science supports the Bible as reliable. Let's talk about the Bible for just a moment written over the course of just over 1,500 years, 66 books, 40 authors, and one hope, one common thread, and his name is Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh. His name was Jesus. He came to walk among us. So there has been a common thread from Genesis to Revelation, and it is Jesus. And, and, and we're going to get into a little bit of the math on this, but the, the probabilities that 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years could somehow be in cahoots with one another where they're like, oh yeah, listen, I'm going to make a commitment to you that my great, 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 great grandson is going to write this little portion of the scripture, and don't worry about it. They're going to do exactly what I tell them to do because I'm going to be long dead, right? Like, like we just, we can put this together. And, and, when, and when we're talking about our scripture, right? I mean, let's just talk about some other writings for a moment, right? The Quran. The Quran was written within a 20-year span of Muhammad's death. And when the Quran was written, it was written by all these people who say that, that exactly what they wrote was exactly what Muhammad said, and you might ask yourself, why did Muhammad not write it? Well, because Muhammad couldn't read or write. And so over the course of his life, he said all of these things. And then within a 20-year period, all these things got written down. And so what was it? It was one book, one book written over the course of less than 20 years from the voice of one person. We could talk about the book of Buddha. The book of Buddha, the, the oldest uh, confirmed copy we believe we have is from somewhere around 300, 350 BC. We have no way of proving how long ago Buddha lived. Most scholars speculate it was probably somewhere around 500, 550 BC, but the only evidence for that is in his book. And that book itself is supposed to be just a combination of the writings of Buddha and the thoughts of Buddha, who himself was in essence, an atheist version of a Hindu. So he loved a lot of what he saw in the Hindu faith, but he didn't believe that there was a series of gods out there doing their work. And so he created this faith and he wrote it out. So you end up with one book again. 
And then, then we could talk about Wicca, which is mind-blowing right now, the rate of increase that witchcraft is having in the United States. I've got a video that I'm working on that'll be released, and it's probably going to be a month before we're done with all of our research on exactly what we're seeing in our nation right now with witches and covens and their, their engagement in politics. It's crazy. It's the fastest-growing religion in the United States right now. Founded in 1959 by a man, uh, uh, last name Gardner. And this guy writes a book called Magic's High End, I believe is the name of the book. And he writes it under a pseudonym because he was afraid for the backlash that would be given on his life. And this becomes the introductory book, the thing you need to go and read if you want to jump into witchcraft, as well as his Book of Shadows, which is where he wrote all of his spells that he made up. Now, I say made up, and I mean made up, but I am not saying that there is no authority inside of that. Let me just go ahead and blow your mind in case you're not of this opinion. Paul says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. So do not think for one moment that when somebody says that they're into witchcraft, that it immediately means that there's no power and authority in their life. There's just power and authority that has to be subjected to the authority of God. And if you do not have the authority of God, run. I heard uh, a pastor one time say that uh, he had sent his kids to a Christian Bible camp, right? And they came home and they wouldn't sleep. And he was like, what's going on? And he said, well, they were doing, you know, stories around the campfire, you know? And he was thinking, oh, ghost stories. Like, what are they doing? And he, they said, no, 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 it wasn't ghost stories. It was demon stories. And his kid, he was like, what? And he, he said, yeah, they were talking about demons and exorcism, and, and it was just really scary. And he said he had this epiphany in that moment. He said, I wish I had sent my kids to a normal camp so that I could look them in the eyes and say, baby, ghosts aren't real. He said, but then I was caught right there in that moment not being able to lie to my kids and try to tell them that demons aren't real because demons are real. And there is a spiritual war happening around us. Again, one book written by one man. Fastest growing religion in our nation right now. And the complexity of Scripture to, to be written over 1,500 years and for all of the complex dots to be connected. Let's just talk about prophecies for a moment. David wrote that the Messiah would be crucified a 1,000 years before it happened and 500 years before the first crucifixion even took place. Crucifixion wasn't even a thing when David wrote about it. Isaiah, right? He wrote that the Messiah would be born of a virgin 700 years before it happened. And Micah wrote that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem 700 years before it happened. A professor named... Uh, Peter Stoner, I don't think he got that name because he was a druggie, uh, but maybe. Westmont College in Santa Barbara. He wrote a book uh, that he, he published a, a series of works where he did uh, uh, some mathematic uh, uh, compilations on the odds of some of these prophecies coming to fulfillment. Uh, in the first part of this book, listen to, to what they say. He points out that this copy that his copy of Young's General Astronomy, published in 1899, is full of errors. Yet the Bible, written over 2,000 years ago, is devoid of scientific error. 
For example, the shape of the earth is mentioned in Isaiah 40, 22. Gravity can be found in Job 26, 7. Ecclesiastes 1, 6 mentions atmospheric circulation. A reference to ocean currents can be found in Psalm 8, 8. And the hydraulic cycle is described in Ecclesiastes 1, 7. And Isaiah, and Isaiah 55, 10. The second law of thermodynamics is outlined in Psalm 102, 25 through 27 and Romans 8, 21. And these are only a few examples of scientific truths written in the scripture long before they were discovered by scientists. The odds of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, he figured these odds out based on the population of the earth and the population of Bethlehem. He said the odds of Jesus being born in Bethlehem was one in 280,000. But that was just one prophecy of 108 prophecies that were fulfilled. And they decided that trying to figure out how to determine the odds of all 108 prophecies being fulfilled, that trying to determine that was something they could not do. So what they decided, him and his team decided they would just take eight prophecies that were fulfilled, just eight, and determine the odds of fulfillment. The odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of 108 prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. That's your number right there. And if you want that a little bit simplified, it is one in 100 quadrillion for just eight of the 108 prophecies to be fulfilled. Now, of this, he was trying to create an illustration to help people understand. And he, he, he came up with this illustration. He said, if you were to take a silver dollar and you were to set them, silver dollars, if you were to set them side by side so they were touching in all directions, it would fill up the entire state of Texas and then go two feet high. And the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies would be the same odds as blindfolding somebody and telling them to find the one silver dollar in the stack that had 1979 minted on it. It's the year I was born. That's why I picked it. It's very special to me. Those aren't good odds. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to be blindfolded, and I want you to wander the state of Texas in a two-foot pile of silver dollars until you find the one that says 1979. I, I would have to argue that we would spend our entire lives looking through all of the silver dollars that we could get our hands on and not be able to find it and yet Jesus fulfilling just eight of the 108 beat those odds. And I would argue here that science supports the reliability of the Scriptures, but in the end, it requires faith. It requires faith. Paul, continuing in his writings to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 says in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This, this, this word here, they will endure. My father-in-law pointed this out to me the other day. We, I was talking to him about what I'm teaching and he said, you need to go home and look up the, the definition of that word in the context of the Greek. It is to have patience or to suffer. 
to have patience or to suffer. The idea of enduring sound teaching is not just like, well, I don't want to hear it. It means that I'm going to choose to hear it, and it's not comfortable. It's not what I want. You know what that says to me? That says to me that the philosophy of, well, I can't believe in a God that would do it that way because I wouldn't do it that way is a philosophy that doesn't work. That God knows better than I do. Just as every one of us who have kids will understand that there are seasons in their lives where we know better than they do. And when they're kids, we can just call them, boom, that's it. But I have been in conversations with plenty of you who have grown kids that you still are going, I know what I'm talking about, but in their stubbornness, they don't listen. And this is why we see this language inside of Scripture of father and son, right? The imagery that God uses is intentional so that we can understand the relationship and so that we can understand that he gets it too, that he understands that our stubbornness and our resistance is just a result of sin. But we have to be willing. Part of becoming a Christian is coming to the place where we repent of our sins, And when we repent of our sins, that means that we're identifying and acknowledging that not just like I need help, God, but I am going to be different. And the standard by which we get to that place, I'm arguing today, begins with Scripture. And so the burden is on us if we're believers. But I want to point something out, and I've been doing this a lot lately because I know that the things that I say are intense and there are Plenty of people who have told me I can't go to your church or I don't know if I can be at the church. And, and, and I'm not going to lie, I've had people that are very, very, very important to me who have walked away from relationship and it hurts. But I, I want to say that the, I'm going to point something out here because whether or not I'm your pastor or somebody else is your pastor, you need to understand the role a pastor is called to fulfill. Just before Paul talks about enduring sound teaching, this is what he says to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he says to him, he says, I'm charging you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen, there are plenty of times where we can, we're, we're coming in and cheering people on and saying what a great job, that, that, that's, that is definitely a part of all of our lives and should be the role that a pastor takes sometimes. But the more difficult role for a pastor to take is to say the difficult things. And they better be doing it out of conviction and they better have it backed up with the word of God, not just because they want to get into the fight. The heart had better be pure. And he closes this statement of enduring with verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And that's the burden that's on me. And it is the burden that I am constantly coming back to, especially in intense seasons like we're in right now, where there is so much division in our families, in our communities, in our jobs, and in the media. 
is I want to be sober-minded, and I want to be walking in the will of the Lord, and I want to be instructing those people who would say, Pastor Jim, you're my pastor. I want to be doing it in a way that honors him. And so we'll close here right now, and I will tell you that there is one way, there is one God, and there is one salvation. Tomorrow night, we have a podcast that's going to go live at 7 o'clock. You'll find it on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. And I'll tell you, it's an interview with a missionary who, well, with a man who was a missionary for 14 years in India and has been six years doing work in Israel, dealing with people coming from pantheistic backgrounds, meaning that they believe in many gods. And the things that he shares that they say and their world outlook is dangerously similar to the things that I am hearing from people who call themselves Christians today. Jesus told the rich young ruler, what? You've got to abandon it all. He told the woman accused of adultery, go and sin no more. There is a determined expectation on our lives as believers, and it is the repentance of sin. And we find it in Scripture, and that's where our authority begins as children of God. Let's stand to our feet. This week, I want to invite you to ask yourself and your groups and your community, your family, some questions. Where do you stand on the accuracy of the Bible? Don't, don't just go, oh, yeah, I believe it. You need, to, you need to think about this because I'm not just blowing smoke telling you this is a conversation. I am telling you, I am telling you that this there is an attack on this idea, this principle. And some of you may already be wrestling with whether or not you believe in the accuracy of Scripture. So have the conversation, even if it's just with yourself, and begin to do some research. And if you come to a place where you do not believe it is accurate, then explain why. Like if you're going, yeah, I don't think it is, then be rational to yourself or to your community group or to the people around you and begin to break down. Why is it I've come to that conclusion? And if you do believe that it is accurate, what role should it play in your life? If you do believe that it is the breathed, inspired Word of God, and it is accurate and reliable for today, what role should it play in your life? Amen. I want to pray for you guys. I want you to be encouraged. Do you know that God is on the throne? Do you know that Jesus is alive? Do you know that Jesus has promised to return and that all of this will pass away? And regardless of whether that's in a day or in a hundred years, he's faithful. And he's going to see us through. He's going to see us through. We're going to get through this. And because of the reliability of Scripture, I know what I'm called to do right now, and it's not to fight, and it's not to war, but it's to prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we surrender to you right here, right now, the intensity of this season in our lives. God, I lift up every person that is struggling with anxiety, fear, depression, hopelessness, anger, 
uh, uh, rage. There's so many emotions that we're seeing manifested right now. And God, I lift up all of those to you right now. And I pray that the spirit of peace would come and comfort them, that your Holy Spirit would do a work inside of them to bring them back to a grounded state where they will be reminded, as I have needed to be in, the, in, the, in these days, that you are sovereign. And that even if there are fierce debates happening around us about the integrity of who you are, the integrity of ministers that are falling and making mistakes, that you are still on the throne, and you are still at work. And I pray that we would not be so distracted by the chaos of this season that we would become worthless in the efforts that you've called us to. Realign our hearts. Draw us closer to you than ever before. Allow us to rely on your word to be the authority by which we walk day in and day out. We love you and we praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need prayer before you leave, the prayer ministry team is in the back. I'm slipping out the back just as a precaution. I love you guys. Uh, we wrapped up Ezekiel on midweek this last week, and so we're going to take a break from our online midweek for a, a minute, so we won't have that this Wednesday. We're working on some other projects. We love you guys. As always, go change your world. We'll see you next Sunday.